Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. We are in chapter 5 and uh, around verses 17 through 20, which is really a very fascinating section. In our last episode, we talked about how Jesus has a pro-Torah stance. He clearly does. He has a high view of the law and uh, says that it must be fulfilled and that uh, his disciples must fulfill the law. Of course, he's come to uh, fulfill all righteousness, like we heard in the baptism with John the Baptist, but uh, this also needs to then spill over into the lives of his disciples. Uh, Listen carefully as I reread the text for us, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not not a yoda, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And now he makes it more general in verse uh, 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, in our last episode, we talked about how uh, Jesus' pro-law stance really does not contradict the things that we read about in Paul so much. The the categories of law which Jesus has in his mind are then seen in the rest of chapter 5, in which he talks about things like anger and lust and divorce and retaliation and love and, and so on. Those sorts of things the law talks about, and we have to take them seriously and then Jesus introduces this idea of being great or being least. And from our last episode, we concluded that these are varying status positions within the kingdom of God. Some are greater and some are less. And in part, our position in that future kingdom will be determined by our adherence to actually obeying God's commands. Okay, so that's all fine and good, as someone might be thinking. But what then about verse 20? I mean, think about it this way. What Jesus has been saying uh, could easily uh, be agreed with by the Pharisees. I could just imagine them sitting there, nodding their heads in agreement, saying, that's right, another home run by Jesus. He's doing a great job. Talk about the law. We've got to do it. And then he says in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The problem is that the Pharisees' righteousness, as presented by Matthew, is only skin deep. Uh, It's not that uh, Jesus is saying you need to be absolutely perfect even to enter, but he's saying that your righteousness needs to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. And seen from the perspective of the Gospel of Matthew, what he's saying in essence is your righteousness has to be more than skin deep. It has to be more than hypocritical righteousness or else you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, of course, there's all sorts of other theological statements that need to be said. Matthew 5.20 is just a part of the theological puzzle, but it is a really important part that the people who don't have anything besides a superficial righteousness show signs that they have never repented and can only expect that they will be excluded uh, from the kingdom of God. Matthew will continue to describe the Pharisees as people who are hypocrites. Consider his constant reference to them in Matthew chapter 23. He says in verses 2 to 3 of that chapter, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Now, this is a perfect segue for what follows, in which Jesus presents several antitheses, showing that his code of ethics absolutely must go beyond superficial conformity, but must reach the heart. And what we've seen then in these verses are three conceptual categories. Uh, The first two are in the kingdom, but the last is not. The first are those who relax the law. They say, ah, the law is not that big of a deal. They are the least in the kingdom. If this seems harsh, well, so be it. But also recall that these are teachers who are held to a higher standard, uh, and least means something like very little. The second are those who do and teach the law. They are great in the kingdom. The third are those who are far below the first category because their righteousness is only hypocritical. If Matthew's listeners, whoever they are, do not have the righteousness that comes from within, that is to say, they are not complete, as in verse 48. They will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This forms a shocking connection with the end of the sermon in chapter 7, in which Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, time does not allow us to go into an in-depth discussion of each of these different uh, antitheses. But I want to point out a few things as we read through them. Uh, Namely, that the overall idea of all of these is to point us forward to verse 48, the grand conclusion of Uh, this chapter. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the idea behind this Greek word isn't uh, literally flawless. It has the idea of being complete or being whole. Uh, You're not speaking out of both sides of your mouth. Now, notice how that is illustrated in each section. Let's start reading in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to uh, the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Here in this section on anger, Jesus is saying it's not enough to just simply abstain from killing someone. The idea 
penetrates even to uh, the center of a person, even to their heart? Are you actually angry with that person and wish them dead? I suppose you could think about it this way. It's like it, it doesn't do you any credit if you wish you could kill the person, but you just don't have the guts to do it because you're afraid of the law. God doesn't give you bonus points for that. Um, the real problem stems from the heart. And if uh, in your heart you hate, but it, you don't actually do it, that doesn't count for anything. I consider also starting in verse 27, the prohibition against lust. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. Now, one of the fascinating past, uh, features of this part is, is this idea of cutting off different body parts. On the one hand, it's a hyperbole to do whatever needs to be done to avoid sin. Because when the options are entering the kingdom or entering hell, no sacrifice is too great to make. But Jesus says that you need to cut off your body parts if that's what's causing you to sin. Again, this is profound in light of what Jesus is doing in the sweeping movement of the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying that your righteousness needs to stem from your heart. And the problem with killing, for example, is that it starts in your heart. And the problem with adultery is that it starts from your heart. So, an intelligent listener to what Jesus is saying. Uh, we could just imagine him uh, interrupting Jesus and saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I'm catching you right, Jesus, it, it sounds like you're saying the thing that's wrong with me is my heart, is not my hands and my eyes. Cutting off my eyes and my hands won't actually solve the problem. If the problem is my heart and I need to cut out whatever causes the problem, well, it sounds to me like what I need to do is cut out my heart. Now, that is part of the application of what uh, Jesus is going for in all of this. And to kind of fast forward to the end, he will talk about a good tree bearing good fruit and a bad tree bearing bad fruit. And there does come a point in which a person needs to realize the reason that I'm bearing bad fruit is, well, it's not because of my circumstances or because I played video games as a kid or because of my parents. It's, well, because I'm a bad person. It's because there's a disease that I have, the disease of sin. And then we can take the posture of someone, say, like the leper in chapter 8 and come to Jesus for the cleansing, the forgiveness, and uh, even importing ideas of the new covenant in. Uh, we come to Jesus for the new heart uh, the new spirit written on our heart, uh, which Jesus Christ alone can offer us. So that brings us up through verse 30. Um, notice that uh, he continues on with these antitheses. And as we read them, we'll notice that he's going to continue to beat away on that drum of the importance of actually obeying the law, but not superficially only, but to do it actually from the heart. Uh, starting in verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, uh, makes her commit adultery. 
and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here, Jesus, again, is repeating the law um, as it is found in places like Deuteronomy chapter 24. But he's saying that uh, it's not just enough to get through on some sort of technical loophole. We actually have to have the same heart that God has uh, in valuing marriage and loving our spouse. In verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Jesus here is referencing uh, an ancient practice of of uh, making a promise by something that is uh, not so important so as to allow yourself loopholes so that way you can get out of what you're saying. As if swearing by the altar is one thing and swearing by the gold on the altar is somehow more binding. And Jesus says, uh, trying to find loopholes to getting out of what you're supposed to do uh, will not cut it with God. Next we read, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is an interesting passage because Jesus is, uh, he is quoting something from the law, but the idea in that passage was that um, you're not just allow you're not to allow retaliation to go on and on and on indefinitely. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was to say we're supposed to uh, stop this horrible cycle. Jesus is then saying the heart behind that is to seek for the uh, the vicious cycle to be over and look for reconciliation. And then comes one of the hardest passages here in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, "You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. The idea here is that we are to do our actions because we know that's how God would have us to act because that's how he acts and not because it's advantageous to us. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.